The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Um, I think that the majority of churchgoers, my opinion, the majority of churchgoers don't understand that our salvation is not based on what we do, but it's based on what Christ did for us. I think the majority of people think that their relationship with God is based on their performance. They think that as long as they live right, that God will not condemn them. And this is a work system. To attempt to live the Christian life by works is to live under constant guilt and condemnation. But to understand that salvation is by grace through faith, and that we are absolutely secure because of Christ's work, that brings great peace to our lives. Now last week we looked at the ongoing consequences of the sin of Adam. We talked about the ground curse. For our study this morning, we're going to be looking at the spiritual consequences that the whole human race faces because of Adam's sin. We're going to be looking at Romans 12 through 21 that Mike read. This is one of the most theologically important texts in the Bible. Hopefully you understand that by the end of this time. Because in this passage is the clearest statement in the Bible on what is called original sin. Also here we have a complete answer to those who doubt the historicity of Adam and Eve. There are some who claim that the first chapters of Genesis are just mere legend or they're myth, that Adam and Eve were not real people, but this chapter in Romans shows that belief to be false. The substance of this paragraph is parallel and in a contrast between Adam and Christ. In verses 12 through 21, Paul explains the solidarity of humankind and how its representatives or its federal head, Adam, brought it into a state of alienation towards God through disobedience. Paul develops the parallel between Adam and Christ. Adam is the head of the whole human race. Christ is the head of the new covenant people. That there is an analogy, an analogy here is shown by the statement at the end of verse 14. He says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So here we see that Adam is a type, and Christ is the anti-type. Now Paul calls Yeshua the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Christ... The last Adam, as representative head of the new covenant community, reconciles his people to God, whom Adam had separated from God. Now, what exactly do we mean by a type? Well, E.W. Bullinger writes this, Theologically speaking, a type may be defined as a figure or example of something future and more or less prophetic called the antitype. So we have a type. And then we have the anti-type. The type is the picture, and the anti-type is the reality. 
A type is a real exalted happening in history which was divinely ordained by God to be a prophetic picture of good things which He purposed to bring to fruition in Christ. William G. Moorhead writes concerning types. He says, a type is a draft or sketch of some well-defined feature of redemption. And therefore, it must in some distinct way resemble the antitype, i.e. Aaron, as high priest, is a rough figure of Christ, the great high priest. And the Day of the Atonement in Israel, Leviticus 16, must be a true picture of the atoning work of Christ. A type always prefigures something future. A scriptural type and predictive prophecy are in substance the same, differing only in form. A type always looks to the future. An element of prediction must necessarily be in it. So we could think of, I guess, a type as an acted-out prophecy. And it's as truly prophetic as, it is a, as is a spoken prophecy. And it had equal value with a spoken prophecy and directing the faith of the Israelites to their coming salvation. Let me give you a couple interpretive principles that we need to keep in mind when studying types. First of all, it must be recognized that types are grounded in real history. The people, places, events, etc. were deliberately chosen by God to prepare for the coming of the Christian system. Secondly, there's a graduation from type to antitype of the lesser to the greater, from the material to the spiritual, from the earthly to the heavenly. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 46. It says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So Paul's talking about Adam, who he calls a type, in Romans 5.14. And then speaking of Adam and Christ, Paul says in verse 46, that types go from natural to spiritual. So the type would be a natural thing, an earthly, material. The anti-type is spiritual, it's heavenly, it's a fulfillment of that reality. Now the representative nature of Adam is also the same type of representation that is in Christ. And that's what he's trying to make here in this argument. As Adam represented us in the fall, Yeshua represents us on the cross and in the resurrection. This section in Romans 5 is a comparison between two men, Adam and Christ. And the comparison is very simple. There are two men who each performed a single act that brought a single result and that result is experienced by every member in their prospective races. In Adam, all are condemned. In Christ, all are made righteous. All men are born in Adam, and it's only by grace through faith that we are placed in Christ. Now, Paul expects his readers to know that the function of understand what the function of Adam was. Because if they don't, they're going to be confused here. But if you understand the function of Adam, then he wants to learn what the function of Christ was. And I think if you understand this, it'll definitely make a difference in your Christian life. He starts out with therefore. And this should be read, so it comes about. 
And it connects this section with what precedes it in verses 1 through 11. And Paul's purpose in 1 through 11 is to show us the absolute certainty and finality of our salvation. Something so many people don't understand. Can I lose it? Oh, what if I did this? You know, and they're worried about it. You know, and we talk, you know, the church is divided. You know, is salvation forever or can you lose it? Well, this answers that question. And the ultimate proof that we are in Christ, in His life, and nothing can ever sever that connection. In verse 10 he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more. Alright, this is what's called an a fortiori argument. If this, then this is way better. Okay, so he said, if we're enemies, when we're enemies, God reconciled us. God loved us and He brought us into His family by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we're reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. If God reached out to us when we hated Him or enemies and He made us part of His family, is He ever going to abandon us? No. Salvation is secure. It is forever. It is based on Christ. As believers, we are in Christ. We share His life. And here the Apostle explains our union with Christ. But in order for us to understand what that means, he must first explain our union with Adam. Paul's going to show that we have the same relationship now with the Lord as we had before our salvation with Adam. He wants us to understand the idea of imputation. That's credit being put to one's account. Because the story of the entire human race can only be understood in terms of our relationship to Adam and his imputation of sin to us. Tom Holland writes this, The typical Western mind approaches the letters of Paul from an individualistic perspective. I would say that we approach everything from an individual perspective. It's all about me, my, you know, that kind of thing. Interpreting all the descriptions about the work of God in the light of, indiv- of the individual Christian experience, this was not the way the early church understood Paul's writings. The letters were to churches about the work of God for his people, and the arguments they contained were inevitably corporate. The change of perspective most detected once we get to verse 12 is not Paul's, but ours, and it is false. In the West, our culture conditioning derives largely from Greek culture, and it teaches us to think at an individualistic level. I think that's very true. Greek has influenced our thinking so much that you know we get off course a lot because of it. Now, in order to understand this text, we have to understand the corporate nature of this text. Verse 12 starts out, just as. And this suggests a comparison. Often in Scripture you'll see just as, and then you'll see even so. Making a comparison. This was, so is this. Alright, just as. Now the problem here is where's the even so? It's not in verse 12. He doesn't complete the comparison in verse 12. He only gives us half it. Adam. Well then verses 13 through 17 are a parenthesis for clarification And then in verse 18 and 19, he completes the comparison started in verse 12. So let's look at it that way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, 
Even so, one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. All right, so what he's saying here, one man did one thing. Adam sinned. Christ lived righteously. One man did one thing, Adam, resulting in sin and death. The other man did something else, resulting in justification in life. Just as the one act of Adam affected every member of the human race, even so, the one act of Yeshua affects every member of the New Covenant community. The word one is used 12 times in verses 12 through 19. The emphasis in this section is is on how one man's act affects all whom he represents. Very important that we get that. One man... One act, one result. All right, so in this text, we're going to see two representatives, Adam and Christ. We're going to see two acts, sin and obedience. We're going to see two results, death and life. And we're going to see two races, the human and the elect believers. In Adam, we have sin and death. In Christ, we have obedience and life. And it's essential to your theology that we understand these verses. Because if you mess up here, your whole theology is going to be off. Adam represented the human race. He is the father of mankind with all embracing headship. When he sinned and broke his covenant relationship with God, he took all his offspring with him into darkness. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Now, notice here that Paul didn't write, through one man and one woman, sin entered the world. We see here, Adam, the first man, had a unique responsibility which Eve did not have. Genesis shows that Eve was the one that Satan picked to tempt, and she's the one that broke the specific commandment not to eat of the tree, But that didn't seem to make any difference to God or Paul. They hold the man accountable. And when Paul talks about how sin entered the world and how we are all now sinners because of that first sin, he talks about Adam, not Eve. Because Adam is the head of the race. He is the responsible one. And the point is that God holds men responsible for their unique role of leadership. Now, the result of Adam's sin... First of all, we see sin came into the world. Now, what's important here is that Paul does not say sins, plural. He says, the sin. All right? There is a definite article here. The sin came into the world. Definite article for sin and death. So he's talking about a specific sin and a specific death. And Paul is personifying sin and death. Now, in the new Exodus thought, sin and death play the role of Pharaoh. And we see this is a second Exodus that's being talked about, out of sin. Now, the Greek word for sin here is hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. The mark is what God commands you to do or not do. To do that, to not do that, is to miss the mark. Hosea 6-7 says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So God and Adam were in a covenant relationship, and Adam broke it. He turned away from God. 
Adam introduced sin into the human realm. Adam was placed in a perfect environment in the Garden of Eden. And God gave Adam one prohibition. 613 commandments are in the law of Moses. 613. God just gave Adam one. Just do anything you want in this garden. Live it up. Have a blast. Eat anything you want. Just one tree? Don't eat that tree. That's all you got to do. That seems simple, doesn't it? Could you handle that? Adam couldn't. Okay? Look at Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. She takes the lead, he follows the fall. Adam eats the forbidden fruit. He sinned. Sin is violating the command of God. And when Adam sinned, sin came into the world. So, how did sin enter the world? Well, there's different views on this. Pelagianism, I'm sure you've heard of that. The Pelagian theory is that sin entered by others following Adam's bad example. Okay? Pelagius wrote, as long as people sin as Adam sinned, they die. But our text says, sin, not sins. Adam didn't bring sin into the world by setting a bad example. Some teach that Adam's sin wrought a constitutional change of unholiness within the heart, and that act resulted in an innate corrupting principle, and he transmitted this to his descendants. I'd be more in agreement with Tom Holland, who writes, In biblical terms, the doctrine of original sin has nothing to do with an inherited, inherent, distorted nature, but is about being in a condition of enmity towards God because of the sin of our father, Adam. Being born in sin is to be born into the rebellious human race. It is about being part of the kingdom of darkness that Adam's rejection of God has established. As children of Adam, all humankind shares in that same sin and in so doing has chosen to reject God. Now theologians call this original sin. The sin is called original sin because it's derived from the original root of the human race, Adam. And because it presents in the life of the individual from time of his birth and therefore cannot be regarded as a result of imitation. Now, it's not that you sin and that made you a sinner. You're a sinner and that's why you sin. Every human being born is born with original sin. All right? Born a sinner. Now, our evolutionary humanistic society denies this vehemently. Some, it's true, are willing to acknowledge, oh yeah, some people do sin, or even everyone sins once in a while, particularly if you want to refer to the ethical misjudgment as sins. But baby sinful? Nothing strikes the heart of humanism quite so devastating a blow as that notion. But how else do we explain sin as being universal? This universal tendency to evil has been stated very clearly by a secular agency, the Minnesota Crime Commission. In studying humanity, the commission came up with this frightening and factual conclusion. Every baby starts life as a little savage. Now, Kaylin, you don't know this yet because she's only five weeks old, right? 
So give her a couple more weeks, okay? She'll start demonstrating her nature, you know? It's funny when you, you, know, you have kids and you all of a sudden you're lying to them and you're like, where'd you learn to lie? You know, they go into classes at night while you're, they're sleeping or something, they're learning this stuff. How do they learn this stuff that, you know, it just seems to come natural to them, doesn't it? Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants and he sees with rage. An aggressiveness which would be murderous were he not so helpless. <laughs> he is dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulse actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. That's the Minnesota Crime Commission. And if you've had kids, okay, you're like nodding, yeah, I did see this in my children. Sweet little darlings, yes, okay. It's amazing how they can be so small, but you deny them what they want. And oh, my word. You see something, you're like, where did that come from? I'm telling you where it came from, okay? They're born in that, all right? Through Adam's personal sin, original sin came to all mankind. All humanity, every person is born separated from God. We're born sinners. So the result of Adam's sin is that sin... It came into the world, and secondly, death came as a result of sin. That's what Paul says in the text, and death through sin. As a result of Adam's sin, he died. Now, the question we've got to discuss here is, what is the meaning of death? Because this gives, everybody wants to argue about this. He's speaking here, is he speaking about physical death? Or is he speaking about spiritual death? Now, most commentators say he's talking about physical death. Some say it's physical and spiritual. Most say that man dies physically because of sin. But is that true? Well, let's go back to the original sin and and see what God said. He's telling Adam, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Did Adam die that day? If you say no, then you're saying, Well, God lied to him. That's the same thing Satan said to him. You won't surely die. But he didn't die physically. He lived another at least 900 years beyond the day he ate the fruit. But God said he would die that day that he ate. And I'm going to go with what God said. I'm going to believe that, okay? Adam did not die physically that day, but he did die spiritually. He died spiritually the moment he disobeyed. Spiritual death is separation from God who is life. Now, the literal Hebrew here reads this way. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, die. It's mat tamut, die, die. What the heck does that mean? Well, listen. In Hebrew, doubling the word puts emphasis on the idea. And also putting the word in the first or last position of the sentence does the same. In this case, it's doubled, and it's in the last place. Adam did die spiritually, but that wasn't the only consequence. It's just spiritual, it isn't just spiritual death. 
It's alienation from the provision of God. Adam's sin turned delight into destitution. Not only was he separated from Yahweh, he's put out of the garden into a barren land. To disobey is to experience emptiness and struggle. So Adam's there in this amazing garden where he just doesn't have to do much. He's taking, he was to till it, to keep it. But there's fruit and there's stuff in abundance and now he's outside and he's like scratching out a living. I think Romans 5 makes it very clear. And this is important. Because the New Testament interpretation is the correct interpretation. In Romans 5, Paul makes it clear that Genesis is talking about spiritual death. There's no question when you come to Romans 5 what he's talking about. And we'll look at that. The death introduced by Adam is conjoined with condemnation in verse 16 and 18. 16 and 18 says this, And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following the trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. All right, we see here that Adam's sin resulted in judgment. This is the Greek word krima. Krima is a sentence. It's a decision on the part of the judge. So, okay, God comes along and says, okay, you sinned. You're guilty. That's the sentence. What has to happen next in a court trial? You get sentenced. You're guilty. Now what's next? The penalty phase. you got to go back where they decide, okay, you are guilty. What's your penalty going to be? The penalty here from the judge is condemnation. This is the Greek word katakrama. And this particular word is only used three times in Scripture, all of them by Paul, all of them in Romans. Paul uses katakrama twice. In our text here, we see it condemnation twice. Then he uses it once in Romans 8.1. We'll get there in a second. But katakrama is defined by Souter in the lexicon as the punishment following the sentence. He says it's in a passive formation in the Greek, and it's not likely to refer to the sentence as an edict from the judge, but rather to the punishment. So what is the punishment? Death, right? We know that. Well, I'm going to tell you here, it's spiritual death. It's separation from God. And I can prove that because if you go to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who, who is not condemned, those who are in Christ. There is no katakrama. There's no spiritual death for those in Christ. Now, if we put it this way, there is no physical death for those who are in Christ. Does that make any sense? You know any Christians that didn't die? That aren't going to die? So it doesn't fit. So it can't be physical death that he's talking about in Genesis. Because Paul's talking about this here. There is no physical death. That won't work. But if we put there's no spiritual death, because once you become a Christian, you will never, ever die spiritually. I don't care what you do. You will not die spiritually. Because this transaction is a transaction that took place on God's part, and He's not changing His mind. We are so judgmental today, and we decide who's a Christian by looking at them. Well, people, you can look at people at a bad time in their life and get the whole wrong impression, okay? 
This has to be spiritual death because Christians still physically die. And if Adam's punishment was physical death, then Christians would no longer die because he's reversing that. And the death is also contrasted with eternal life in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Yeshua the Christ. So this makes it clear that it can hardly be talking about physical death. Also, the comparison in this passage in Romans 5 is between Adam and Christ. Right? We got that. That's simple. We got that? What we lost in Adam is restored in Christ. So if death refers to physical, then having gained in Christ what we lost in Adam, we'd never physically die. Hopefully nobody wants to try to argue that way. Okay? So this is spiritual death. Think about this. Is physical death the result of the fall or just part of being human? Scientists tell us that human beings die physically, begin to die physically from the moment of birth. You know, we're growing and developing while cells are also dying, and there's evidence begins to show, you know, as you get older, your teeth decay, your hair begins to fall out, your eyes go bad. I think your eyes go bad as you get older, so you don't realize how you're aging. <laughs> you look and you're like, can't see that good. So yeah, I look pretty good. Okay. <laughs> I believe that all that lived in God's original world, man was created to physically die. I don't think we ever, you know, were created to live on this earth eternally. And death carried no sting until sin entered the world. Now, did Yeshua age? Absolutely, right? Was he sinless? Yes. So his age was, was part of being human. And I believe if he hadn't died for us on the cross, he would have died of old age. I believe that physical death is part of being human. God didn't mean for us to live on the physical earth our whole lives. This is a, time of, this is a short time for us before we go into glory. Alright? So everybody dies. And that's why in Corinthians he says that we received immortality. Believers receive it. The unsaved don't receive immortality. They just die. Because they were always meant to die. Men were meant to physically die. But because of man's sin, he was separated from God, spiritual death. He was dead in trespasses and sin. And the focus of the plan of redemption is to restore through Yeshua what man lost in Adam. Like I said, you can argue it in the Genesis text, but when you get to Romans 5, you can't argue it. It's very clear. Katakrama tells us the sentence is death. Paul tells us in 8.1, there is no katakrama for those who are in Christ. There's no death. And we know we still die physically. Because of Adam's sin, we're all born dead. So he says, therefore, as, just as, and then he says, even so, In Adam we're separated, in Christ we receive eternal life. And the great truth that we see here is that we all have, <clears throat> that all we are and all we have comes out of obedience of the last Adam, the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Our salvation, people, please get this, is based entirely on Him, from Him, and in Him. Amen. As my being a sinner came entirely from Adam. 
entirely from Adam. My righteousness comes entirely from the Lord Yeshua the Christ. The only way anybody to get to heaven is to live an absolutely perfect, righteous life. And I did. In Christ. There's only, that's no, the only other way. That's the only way I'll get in there. And believers, we have to understand that our assurance of salvation comes not from our feelings, comes not from the things we do. It comes from your identity, who you are. Because if you're basing your assurance on your works, you're going to have some bad days. Okay? Amen. You're going to go to bed feeling like, I don't feel very safe today. Well, don't worry about it. Okay? It's not about how you feel. And it's a good thing it's not about how you feel. And what we need to do is look at yourself in Adam and understand this. Though you had done nothing, because you really didn't even know Adam, right? You were declared a sinner because of him. Now, look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you're declared righteous because of him. That's the parallel. And we need to get rid of all these thoughts as far as our actions keeping or gaining salvation. But that's what most of Christianity believes. We do certain good things and we'll get to heaven. Just ask somebody. How do you know you go to heaven? Well, I did. They'll start listing. They're going to give you a list. All right? We're made righteous because of the obedience of Christ and Christ alone. He lived a sinless life, the only person that ever did, and he died in he lived the total obedience to the law, and then he died a substitutionary death on our behalf. It's all about Christ, people. The text says that the free gift came to all men. All men, it says. Now, the all has to be limited to their representative heads. He goes back and forth in this text, all and many. The free gift came to all men who Christ represents. The all must be defined in the context. This is not all without exception. It's all without distinction. It goes for Jews and it goes for Greeks. Without exception here would be universalism. And he gets into the condemnation a lot, so that can't be universalism. All right. We see this same comparison in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life. The life that is a gift is spiritual life here, so the death must also be spiritual. So in answer to the question, what is the death? The death referred to here is spiritual death, which is separation from God. If a person dies physically while in a state of spiritual death, they perish under the wrath of God. That's it. Spiritual death came as a result of Adam's sin. Prior to Adam's sin, he lived in fellowship with God. Now again, we don't know from the biblical text how long after he was brought in this garden, you know, the book of Jubilee says he was there seven years. I like that. Just gives me a little more confidence in him, you know, thinking he fell that very day. I'm like, really? The first day? And you're going to blow it? That's what, I mean, we get that idea, I think, when we read Genesis. Wow, don't touch it. And you went right over and did it, you know. I'm, ho I'm hoping not anyway. I hope he hung on for a little bit, you know, because he was our representative, okay? So the result of Adam's sin, sin came into the world, death came as a result of sin, and thirdly, death spread to all men. Spiritual death came to everybody. Every human being born is separated from God. They're dead in sin. 
Now the question arises here is, why? Why are we all born dead? And the answer is given at the end of the verse, because all sinned. Now the Greek here employs the aorist tense, which indicates that at some point in the past, all men sinned. And that point must be when Adam sinned. So here's the thing you have to understand, people. When Adam sinned, we sinned. If Adam is guilty, I'm guilty. And interpreting this, we need to remember that the chief point of the entire section is to hold before us the comparison between Adam and Christ. The object of that comparison is to emphasize the fact that our relationship to the one is parallel to our relationship with the other. What is true of us in Adam is true of us in Christ. Now, if we don't understand because all sinned, as because all sinned in Adam, the entire comparison between Christ and Adam gets distorted. See, if you say, through one man sin and death entered the world, and death spread to everybody because everybody sinned individually, then the comparison with the work of Christ would be, so also through one man, Yeshua, righteousness and life entered the world and life spread to all because all individually did acts of righteousness. I don't like that one. Okay? So the question that we must answer is, how have we all sinned? And the answer comes in understanding federal headship. Representative or federal headship refers to one who represents a group bound by a common cause or agreement, such as those in covenant or federation, not only as its spokesperson, but as one whose decisions are binding on the larger group by virtue of the individual's role as the federal or representative head. In saying all sin in Adam, Paul is emphasizing people groups rather than individuals. Adam is the historical ancestor of every people group on the face of the earth. It's not a myth, it's not an analogy, it's not an illustration, it's a historical fact. Adam, the first human being, sinned, and in him all human beings sinned. And all are condemned, which means all die. God constituted Adam as the federal head or representative of the entire human race. So when Adam acted, he acted on our behalf as our representative. And Adam's sin has been put to our account. This is imputation. We're all born spiritually dead. Death is penal. Why? Did we personally sin before we were born? No. We sinned in Adam. He represented us. And what he did, we did. Adam's act is put to our account. Now you might say, that doesn't seem fair. I didn't ask Adam to represent me. Who determines fair, first of all? Let me tell you something. What God does is the ultimate standard of right, okay, because he's God. Romans 9, this is text deals with election, and you know, people don't, oh, that's not right for God to choose. He says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Okay? Will what is molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? All right, this is as stupid as you're sitting at a wheel 
and pottery, and you're making this, and you made a vase. And the vase says, why'd you make me a vase? What? You talking to me? Why did you make me? I didn't want to be a vase. I wanted to be a cup. So what do you do? Squash. Throw that clay out. We'll start all over, okay? God is the potter. He can do whatever he wants to do. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use, and another for dishonorable use? See, God is the creator. We are the creation. Whatever he does is good and right. And this answers all the why questions. Why this? Because he wanted to. He's God. If you ever get to be God, you can do what you want to do. But I wouldn't hold your breath, okay? Because God brought everything that is into creation. He controls it all. He rules over it all. Now, we see this idea of federal headship taught all through the Bible. All right? It's not just with Adam. It's, we see it all through there. Remember Achan? And God told Achan, what did God tell the people? Listen, when you get there, don't, their stuff is under the ban. Don't take anything. Just get in there, whip them all, get out of there, okay? Well, Achan, I saw, I desired, I took, okay? And he took of the banned items at Jericho. And the Lord told Joshua this. Remember Joshua went to prayer? He's praying. And God said, get up. What are you praying for? You sin. There's sin in the camp. There's no need to pray about this. Deal with the sin. He says, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. That's interesting. He says, Israel has sinned. Just one, Achan. All right? He viewed Israel corporately through this man's act. And Achan sins, and his whole family is put to death. How'd you like that, Luke? Your dad sins and you're all going to die. Okay? Thanks, Dad. You know? <laughs> Joshua 7, 24 through 25. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the gold bar. You know, this, you know what's really sad about this? The very next battle, God says, take anything you want. Oh, he should have just waited. Okay, but he saw this. I got to take it. All right. And they're taking all the stuff he stole and the sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? Okay, Yahweh brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Why did they do this publicly? He says it over and over in the text, that all may hear and fear. See, when you execute judgment on someone who sinned, other people around it go, oh, that's not good. Okay? <laughs> that gives them, well, I better think about this, okay? But if judgment's carried out in private somewhere, they don't know, and they just think it's okay to do that. You get away with it. Achan, as head of his family, caused the whole family to be put to death because of his sin. Because he was greedy. He lusted after some. God said, don't do it, and he did it. And again, the very next battle, God says, take anything you want. Enjoy it. Wow. How about David and Goliath? They met on the battlefield. One guy's coming out and challenging the army of Israel, and they're all hiding. One guy. 
because it was a representative form of battle. I'm, stand, I'm representing the Philippines. Send you a representative out here. Who wins, wins. So they, David went out there and took care of it, all right? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to reply to the armies of the living God? And he went out there and he took care of it. And they won. Israel won. And the rest of the Philistines fled because of it. And we see through the Scriptures that God dealt with the nation of Israel according to the quality of their king. When their king sinned, the whole nation suffered. We should understand this because our country runs on the principle of representative government. If the president declares war, a lot of young men are going to die because of his declaration. We've seen this all through our history, okay? And, and why do we declare war? It's a money-making operation, that's why. People are getting rich while people die. Now you might say, yes, that's true in America, but we pick our president, and I never choose Adam to represent me. <laughs> How cute that you think you pick your representative. <laughs> How naive that you believe that, okay? <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I got to say this. My wife says I shouldn't because I says I'm accusing people of being dumb. I think the sad thing today is people have quit using their senses. We've come to a point, we just believe what we're told. Okay, I'm not even going to think about it. And let me just say that in the 2020 presidential election, if you think Biden legitimately won that, something wrong with your thinking skills, okay? Because all you have to do is just think about it. For the year before that, Trump has a rally, tens of thousands of people. They're waiting in the dark for an evening rally. People are packed. People are chanting. He walks into a UFC match, and the whole match stands up and is chan you know, chanting Trump, Trump. We see that, I mean, everywhere he goes, people, he pulls up in the airport, and people are waiting at that airport, and he flies in the next one, and they're there, waiting to see this guy, waiting to hear this guy. Biden's at home in his basement. When he does come out, he's got six people sitting in big circles. But people legitimately think he got more votes than Trump. I'm like, uh, and I just scratched my head. I'm like, how, how do you put that together? How do, you, how do you think that? This guy was in his basement and never came out and can't even put a sentence together, beat this other man legitimately. So, yes, we supposedly pick our representatives, but the, <laughs> that was a, definitely a rabbit trail. But <laughs> understand is we have a representative form of government. They rep, I can't say that they represent us. They don't represent me. They supposedly represent us, okay? Dianne Feinstein died last week. You know how much money that woman's got? You know how rich that woman is? Now, her husband's rich, but you know how? How do you get rich from Congress or Senate? How do you get rich? You know why? You're making rules, and you got insider trading, and you know before something happens what you need to do. The whole government is so corrupt, it's... Okay, we're talking about our representative and Adam, okay? The principle of federal headship really offers the only hope to a guilty sinner before God. We stand guilty. How can we ever be forgiven? Works? No. We can only be forgiven through the act of one person, and that's our representative, Christ. 
5.13 says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. You get that, right? Sin is not counted when there's no law? Because if God didn't say, don't do it, it's okay to do it. But you know what people do today? They make up sins. Not even in the Bible. They make them up. It's like there's not enough in there. You've got to make some up for yourself. And then they, you know, condemn other people. The law here is Torah. It's the law of Moses. In other words, sin existed from the time of Adam to the time of Moses before the law even came into effect. But the sin that existed from Adam to the time of Moses was not put, not imputed to people who sinned because there's no law. And without law, you can't have people sinning. It's not imputed to them. And then in verse 14, he says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. How? There's no law even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. So the death reigned here is not physical, it's spiritual death. It's the same death of verse 12. But Paul's trying to show that men were spiritually dead because of Adam's sin. Sin is not imputed when there is no law, but sin existed, but it's not reckoned to men. But men were still dead. Because of Adam. What law was it they broke? Well, there was only one. The same law that Adam broke. And they were dead because they died in their representative Adam. He sinned, and they're reckoned to have sinned in him. So death reigns from Adam to Moses. That's the dominion of death. That's conclusive proof of Paul's viewpoint here that they sinned in Adam. Because of man's solidarity with Adam, judgment has come on all. But the same principle of solidarity will become by means, will become righteous by that. This is because another representative head, the last Adam, was waiting in the wings to come on the stage of the human conflict. And the end of verse 14 says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And literally this is, who was a type of, of the about-to-come one. It's mellow. And this is a reference to the parousia of Christ. Yeshua is the second Adam who brings man back into the presence of God, but he's telling us this doesn't happen until the second coming. Now, <laughs> it's in the text, okay? I'm not making up preter- I, some, you know, I don't get preterism in every message. <laughs> My wife doesn't believe me. But it was in the text there, okay? In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who is responsible for the record to us of the Old Covenant. And the significance of the outer tabernacle being divided and separated from the inner tabernacle was that the way into the presence of God was not yet given. See, the Jews were continually reminded by the physical presence of the tabernacle they were not allowed into the presence of God. Now, the words as the first section is still standing, might better be translated while the first tabernacle still has any standing. While the old covenant was in force, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, as long as the old covenant was in effect, men did not have access to the presence of God. 
So prior to Yeshua's second coming, at which he destroyed the temple in the Old Covenant, nobody went to heaven. Once he destroyed that, that system's done. It's shut down. It's never been revived since. Adam was a type of the one who was about to come. As Adam committed one act, so Yeshua committed one act. It was an act of obedience that led him to the cross where he died for our sin. And Romans 6 teaches us we died with Christ. We were resurrected with Christ. Because his one act of obedience was an act of sacrifice. He gave himself for sinners. What was the result of that one act of obedience? It appeased the wrath of God. It satisfied justice. Sin was paid for. So God put to the account of His elect the righteousness of Christ. As God imputed to every member of Adam's race the sin of Adam, resulting in all men experiencing spiritual death, so God imputed to every member of the new covenant the righteousness of Yeshua. So believers, we're accepted before God. We're justified by the death of Yeshua and His righteousness is imputed to all who believe. There's a big distinction here between imputed and imparted. John MacArthur teaches that righteousness is imparted. You know what that means? You're going to live righteous. You're going to be righteous because it's imparted to you. Imputed means it's put to your account. So you might look at someone and say, oh, they don't look very righteous. Their account, you've got to look at their bank account, okay? They might look like a pauper, but their bank account, if they've trusted Christ, they're rich, okay? Because they have His righteousness in that account. And that's a huge difference between understanding imparted and imputed. We are accepted before God, justified. And without the doctrine of federal headship, there'd be no possibility of salvation. So the issue is not whether one is a good moral citizen. The issue is whether you're an Adam or Christ. That's the issue. In Adam, men and women belong to sin by virtue of Adam's headship. In Christ, they belong to God by virtue of Christ's leadership. Now here's the question we have to ask here and settle. How do we know if Yeshua is my representative? So everybody in the world, they're either being represented by Adam or Christ. How do we know the difference? What? Okay. What you're saying, your faith, our whose faith? Okay. Because you know, if you ask that to people, how do you know if someone's a Christian? What are they going to tell you? They don't smoke. They don't chew. They don't run with girls that do. Right? They got. They got to give you a list of what these people have to do to be a Christian. And what they won't add to the list is things you do. Personally, because if you're doing it, it must be okay, right? So the line is always right below us on what is acceptable behavior, all right? It's not about that, okay? Because, man, alive, you could come up with any kind of thing, all right? Here's the bottom line. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. The ESV here is a literal Greek rendering. Has been born of God. If you believe the gospel, you do so because in the past you've been born again. 
Now, the church, for the most part, has this backwards. They say, you believe, and God will give you the new birth. Well, okay, wait a minute now. I'm dead, right? So how do I believe? I believe myself into being alive? No. The Scripture teaches God gives you life, then you believe. So everyone that believes the Gospel, they've been born of God. God gave them new life, and that's why they believe the Gospel. So the evidence of the new birth is faith. That's the evidence. Bottom line. And you can't always tell that by looking at people, okay? you got to talk to them. you got to find out what they believe. And then we need to ask, because the church is pretty confused on this, is our salvation secure? Well, I hope you know the answer to that already, okay? It has nothing to do with you. It's not about you, right? Romans 5.19 For as... By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So why are people sinners? Because of Adam, right? Because they did a bunch of bad things? No, because of Adam. That's why they're sinners. Just as, even so, the comparison, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. People, if you don't know this verse, you need to mark this verse, you need to memorize this verse, you need to understand this verse. Just as... Even so, just as one man's disobedience made people sinners, even so, people, this is how you become a Christian. By one man's obedience, that's Christ's obedience, the many were made righteous. Our salvation is based on the one act of Christ. Please get that. The security of our salvation is not based on what we do, how we perform. Just as we're all condemned by Adam's act, we're all made righteous through Christ's act. We are all condemned through no fault of our own individually, and we are justified through Yeshua, through no merit of our own. But if God has given you new life, you believe the gospel. One man's disobedience, one man's obedience. Understanding our condemnation in Adam helps us to see that our salvation is based upon not our works, but on Christ finished work. Our salvation is secure because it's based upon what Christ did, not what we did for ourselves. And if you find somebody who's saying, well, I'm not sure about my salvation, then they either don't understand the gospel or they think that somehow their works play a part in this and if they're not performing, they're not doing too good. Now listen, people, when you talk about something like this, people always go nuts because they want to talk about works. Well, you got to work. You got to do work. You got not to be saved. You don't. You're called to live righteously by the God who saved you. And if you understand the gospel and if you understand what God did for you, I think out of gratitude, the response is to live an obedient, righteous life before God. And it's a thank you. Thank you, God. I realize I'm your representative here and I want to live a righteous, holy life. If you're living a righteous, holy life so you can get to heaven, you're on the wrong road. The only thing that gets you there is Christ's righteousness, not your own. It'll never get you there. And when we understand our two representatives, Adam and Christ, and we're in Adam, we're in Christ by faith, people, this should give you an absolute peace of mind, an absolute confidence in, in your salvation and its security. And let me just say, I think people have a hard time living the Christian life when they're not really sure if they are a Christian. 
I mean, how, do you, how are you going to have victory in your Christian life when you're not really sure you're really a Christian? Okay? And so how do you make sure you're really a Christian? Well, have I believed the gospel? Yeah, I did that. And okay, then start living it. Start living out what God's called you to do. Out of gratitude for Him, because you're called to live in a righteous, holy manner. We're called to imitate the God who loved us and gave Himself for us. But so many people today are basing their salvation or the hope of it on their performance. And that's a sad, sad position because it's a damnable position. Christ purchased our ticket to heaven completely and totally and gives it to us. It's all of grace, people. There's no law involved. There's no works involved. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your gift to us of salvation. Lord, I thank you that though we were born in Adam, you called us in eternity past, gave us life, brought us into your family. Lord, I pray that out of a heart of love and thanksgiving, we would desire to live a life that brings glory to you. That when people look at us, they would know we don't fit into this world we're living in. They would understand there's a difference so we can honor you. Lord, thank you for that gift. May we truly understand what your word teaches, that we can rejoice in the security of our salvation. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. Uh, Gary and Chris from PA write, being hopeless and destitute, the only thing we have provided for us to receive the righteousness of Yeshua was our sin. <laughs> How great a salvation. That's it. We don't, we don't provide anything. Junior from Canada. Thank you, Pastor, for the clear biblical teaching you bring to our attention. Thanks, Junior. I appreciate you watching. Um, all right, those of you going to write in questions... You don't have to wait to the very end and then because, you know, I get several of them once I'm done and walk out of the pulpit, you know, then I get questions. And I try to respond to those Sunday afternoon so I don't leave people hanging. But if you got a question, try to get it in a little sooner. I got my phone muted, so it won't bother us. And then we'll be ready at the end. So anybody here? Any questions? Any clear as mud? So in verse 13... It says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. So, like Cain kills Abel, there was no law that said that killing him was wrong. So was, was that sinful? Is Cain going to be in heaven? Then? Well, that, now that's a good question, Seven. And I think the issue here is God had communication with mankind. And I think... When he says there is no law, he's talking about the Torah specifically. That law wasn't given, all right? But I think men did have communication with God. They knew right from wrong. God accepted, you know, Abel's sacrifice. He didn't accept Cain's. Okay, why? 
They must have had some kind of rule to know what to do. The Bible talks about clean and unclean animals before the law was ever given. So there was some understanding men have. But his point here in this text is when he's talking about the sin and the death is referring to Adam's sin. And so he's saying, listen, they didn't have the law of Moses, so that's not the problem. The problem is they sinned already in Adam. So that he's trying to make that connection with federal headship there. But like I said, I mean, I think there's no doubt that God had communication with people. They knew what he wanted, but they had a problem doing it, obviously. Always had a problem doing it. Until God got to the point after the Tower of Babel, he said, I'm done with you. I'm just done. I'm sick of it. None of you listen to me. I'm leaving you. I'm done. Here, he took all humankind and he turned them over to the other gods. And he said, I'm starting over. He chose Abraham. I'm going to try Israel. Guess what? Israel did the same thing Adam did. They failed. Okay? And God says, well, humankind can't do it. I'll do it. God did it. It's all him. And man, it's just super cause for rejoicing. But people don't like this because for some reason, we want to earn our way in. <laughs> that ain't gonna happen. It's just not gonna happen. Okay. Dave. Yes. On, on that, just what you said, that thought goes through my mind. Then, well, didn't God know what He was doing? Like, why did He have to try a couple times? Like, well, He He's showing us. He's not showing Himself. Yeah, He absolutely He absolutely knew. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm a <laughs> I'm a superlapsarian. God knew what was gonna happen before the fall ever took place. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, some people, the infralapsarian people, say, well. You know, God made, put Adam and Eve, and then after the fall, he said, oh my word, what do I do now? And start putting something together, okay? No. He knew what was going to happen from the beginning, okay? Exactly what was going to happen, and he controlled it all. From Norm, thank you so much for today. Regeneration is a discovery, not a self-produced event. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, Norm. I like that. Regeneration is a discovery. You realize why. You know, I don't know about your experience, and everybody's experience is different, but with me, I was like, what happened to me? I mean, really, I was just like, you know, Kathleen, and one of the, I use it as an illustration, she doesn't like it, but we're walking through the mall together after I became a Christian, and I don't think I understood what was going on then. But she did something, maybe she probably did nothing because it was me, but, but I cussed at her, I said, G-D-U. And then I stopped and I went, why did that hurt? I mean, that was nothing new for me. I was always cussing, you know, but this was like, and I'm like, what is happening to me? I did not have a clue, but something was transpiring. And, you know, I went back to the guy that gave me the gospel tract and said, help, (laughs) what do I do? You know, he said, you need to pray and ask God to save you. I said, something's already happened, you know. But I did pray, and life just, you know, began to transform before my eyes. But ah, I'll never forget those days, because I'm like, you talk about confusion. I'm like, what's going on with me? Why? Anthony? If you don't realize that you can put people in your life to make you realize. You Mm -hmm. can't realize it because he he can give you the grace to know Mm -hmm. stuff. But sometimes, like your mates, or you like to say your wife or a friend or whatever, and bring things to your remembrance to make you, even though you, you should, you think to yourself that you should know these things, and then, you know, as we, we go on and not see, just this morning, you know, I, I was greeting or talking to a, the clerk, and Dora had to put me, you know, make me think, you know, sometimes, sometimes we don't think when we should be thinking. 
God puts yeah. people in our lives. There's no doubt yeah. to help God us. God gives know. men women to be their little holy spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after I became a Christian, Kathy and I were at a party. And uh, we've, guys got in a fight as normal, and this one guy and I had words, and he threw his girlfriend at me, and I caught her, and I'm trying to set her down. And while I'm doing that, he starts plop, hit. So I grabbed him, I put him on the ground, and I pulled back, and she goes, he doesn't fight anymore, he's a Christian. And I looked at him, like, could you just waited five minutes? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, and I backed up, and I got, and the guy just had this shocked look on his face, like, thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> For reminding me that I'm not that same person anymore, you know. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was an unforgettable experience. Just say sometimes he doesn't listen to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brother. Oh. Romans, uh, this is Gary again from Pennsylvania. He says, Romans uh, 2.12, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of people, you know, Gentiles were never under the law. Never. Okay? That was given to Israel. None of those things, and that's, it's funny, people struggle with that today. You know, well, that wasn't given to you. You're not Israel. You're not under that law. Never were under that law. You know, so you just, you know, but most people are put under those laws. And Christianity puts a lot of people under those laws just to, I guess it's a good way of trying to control people. Uh, Dana says, Yahweh had decreed a better way. In the garden, things were dependent on Adam's actions. And with the second Adam, Messiah, it was all the work dependent on Yahweh. Yeah, that's right. He is the last Adam who came and brought us back into redemption. And when you understand the story of redemption, like I said, it just makes it so beautiful. Because today the story, for the most part, is distorted, and it's all about what we do. 